Uh, few things engage our hearts as much as the sickness of children, especially our own children. Uh, when ill, we long for them to be better. When in pain, we want the pain to go. And how we want them to know life, to have the birthdays, know the pleasure of achievement, find the love that we ourselves have experienced. Even those of us who, who don't have our own children understand the agony of the parents of three-month-old Zachary Matthew Bryan, the little boy killed by James Gargasoulis in Burke Street, whose father said at the sentencing hearing this week, I listened to his heartbeat and held him for the last time, trying desperately to hold on to the moment. He never had the opportunity to have a birthday party. He had a lifetime of firsts taken from him and all the joys that come with it. We understand, don't we, and we feel his grief. And we understand the desperation that drove this royal official we meet in John 4, this man of influence and wealth, to walk the 25 to 30 kilometres from Capernaum to Cana in Galilee, to walk there to beg Jesus to come and heal his son who was close to death. We feel the urgency of Jesus' need to act. We feel the rightness of the request. Having heard Jesus can heal, knowing he is back in Galilee, it's what we would have done in that man's position. But what we don't understand is Jesus' response, verse 48. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. It seems so hard, doesn't it? So out of character for Jesus to treat a desperate father that way. So what's going on? Where's Jesus' compassion? Well, let's unpack the story to see why we can be confident that there was here no lack of compassion for a desperate man, that the father, believing Jesus, got better and more than he asked for. And let's unpack the story to see why at the end of this story, which is told for us, people with whom Jesus is not physically present, to see why at the end of this story we can, even, we can be even more confident in Jesus and his ability to help us and so grateful for this confronting response to a needy man. Having spent at the request of the Samaritans two days there, Jesus has then continued on into Galilee, his own country, the place where he was brought up, where he is now back amongst his fellow Jews. But as he comes into Galilee, John reminds us in verse 44 of something Jesus has said, that a prophet has no honour in his own country. At first sight, that seems kind of odd next to verse 45, where we get news of the Galileans welcoming Jesus. But this recalled comment is alerting us to the very issue Jesus highlights in his response to the request of the royal official in verse 48, the response that seems shockingly confronting to a needy man. You see, a prophet is someone who brings the word of God and who's received as a messenger of God. The Samaritans have just received Jesus, believed in Jesus because of his words, because of what they heard. They've believed that he is someone who brings the word of God. They've honoured him and they believed without signs. 
But the Galileans received Jesus because of what they had seen him do in Jerusalem, the signs and wonders he was working there. They're like the people of Jerusalem we met in chapter 2 who had believed in Jesus seeing the signs he was doing. But they were people Jesus could not entrust himself to, people whose faith, as will become obvious as we go further on in John, is in Jesus for what they can get out of him and who have no interest in listening to what Jesus is saying, especially what he's saying about himself and his work, the necessity of his dying and rising. So verses 43 to 45, as well as telling us that Jesus is now back in Galilee, also tell us that the issue as Jesus comes into Galilee to his own people is the word. How people will respond to Jesus' word. Will they receive him as somebody who brings the word of God? Listen to him, believe him. Or will they treat him as a wonder worker? Someone come to help and enhance their life but no more and so miss out on the life Jesus comes to bring to all who believe in him. It's against this background of inadequate belief that the royal official makes his way to Jesus, desperate for a cure for his son, begging him, verse 47, to come down to Capernaum and heal his son. Jesus' reply, unless you people see signs and wonders, you'll never believe, is not directed at him personally, alone. It is plural, you people. Jesus is talking about the Galileans generally, though it does include this official. But he is not put off by this seeming rebuke of the inadequacy of faith, of their faith, of their estimates of Jesus. Sir, he continues, calm down before my child dies. He has nowhere else to go, you see, and his need is great and urgent. He's facing death, the death of his child, his son, and so he humbles himself and persists with his request. Jesus responds, but not by doing what this official has asked him to do. The official says, come down. Jesus says, go, verse 50, go, your son will live. Jesus gives him a command, go. Oh yes, and he gives him a statement, your son lives. That's right, and that, that saying your son lives is saying a bit more than your son will live. Your son will live could suggest that Jesus is just making a prediction that at some point in the future the son will live. But in the Greek text, it's actually a present. He lives, not a future. He lives from the moment, the moment of Jesus speaking. You see, Jesus is not saying what the man will find when he gets home. Rather, he's saying what is the case at the moment. Your son lives. But is Jesus just saying that because he knows that's the case or, or, or does his saying make it the case? That is, is Jesus just blessed with supernatural insight or is his word powerful and effective even when he is not physically present? Is his word effective in his physical absence 
able to bring about his will at a distance? Well, we can't tell yet, but the rest of the story will answer that question for us. We'll make clear the power of Jesus' word. The man goes. It says he believed the word which Jesus spoke to him and he set off back to Capernaum. Now notice that. This official believes Jesus' word without a sign. He believes something whose fulfilment he will only be able to see later. He believes in the absence of seeing and his believing, his faith, is seen in his obedience to the word of Jesus now, acting on the word now without seeing its fulfilment. Well, the next day he meets his servants coming up to him with good news that just as Jesus had said, his son lives, verse 51. His faith in Jesus' word was vindicated and he asked them when his son got better. Yesterday at one, of the, at one in the afternoon the fever left him. Then the father realised that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son lives. See, he and we know now that Jesus was not looking into a crystal ball when he said your son lives. Jesus is not just someone with a knack of knowing how things will turn out. Jesus' word is powerful and effective. It brings about what Jesus intends, even when Jesus is not physically there. And the man responds to this revelation of Jesus' greatness in the only reasonable way. So he and his whole household believed. He believed. Before he believed the particular word Jesus spoke to him, but now he believes. He believes Jesus. Believes he is who he says he is, will do what he says he will do. His faith was confirmed and grew from his experience of Jesus' faithfulness. And that's an experience only believers know. And the man brings his whole household with him by his testimony to Jesus. They all believed. Now think about this man's journey to faith in Jesus. He did not get what he was asking for in his desperation. Come down. No, he got something better, something more by believing Jesus' word. Something better because his son was spared many hours more of sickness. You see, it would take time to travel down to Capernaum and all the time the son would have been getting worse. Jesus, answering Jesus' way, healed in the moment. The man getting his own way would have meant more suffering for his son. Believing Jesus' word, having things done Jesus' way, was better. And this official got more. He learnt the power of Jesus' word, that it brings into being what it promises, even if its fulfilment is initially unseen. And so he learnt and came to trust, to believe in Jesus as the one who spoke the word of God, the one whose word, a word that promised life, could be trusted, even when it spoke of things he could not see. A word of promise good, not just for life now, but as Jesus claims, 
good for life forever. And so what's his journey to this life? Well, it's from faith to faith. There he is. He came with a need that was beyond his own resources to meet, attracted by the reputation of Jesus. And that may be you this evening, coming to Jesus with needs you long to be met. Maybe for that life partner or to fix your marriage. Maybe to take away your anxiety or for work. And you're coming because you've heard of Jesus' reputation as powerful and compassionate. Well, this man came with his need, but he met a confronting word, a word that rebuked his lack of faith, that desire for signs, which is actually a desire to stay in charge of our lives, to only deal with Jesus on our terms, where we can see, can trust ourselves and our judgments of Jesus, because We've demanded he prove himself to us. So we're actually trusting ourselves and not Jesus, just using Jesus. He came and he met this confronting word. And again, that may be you. You might be interested in Jesus, getting close to Jesus. And then you hear Jesus call for your repentance and faith. That is, call you to give up trusting yourself and turn back to accept his rule over your life. You're getting close to Jesus and find he exposes your sin, the ugliness you want to deny, your selfishness or your harsh words or your lust or whatever. How will you respond? Well, this man, rather than walk away, royal official that he was, humbled himself. He humbled himself to persist with his request for his need, his longing, was deep and he had nowhere else to turn. He humbled himself. A royal official, a man used to being in charge, humbled himself to believe Jesus' word and be directed by Jesus. You see, he had come with a plan about what should happen and what Jesus should do. Come down. But Jesus had another plan. And in believing Jesus' word, this man was actually confessing that Jesus was greater, the one to be trusted, that it was right to do things Jesus' way, not his own way. And he had his longing met Jesus' way. Starting by believing Jesus' word and so obeying Jesus' word, he came to see how much greater Jesus was. That Jesus was somebody who could be trusted not just with this need or that, but with his whole life. And not just his whole life, but the life of those he loved. And that's where we all have to start, isn't it? There's no other starting place than Jesus' word. Whether it's that word that says repent and believe, or the word that says come to me all who labour and are heavy laden, or the word that says take up your cross and follow me. We start with Jesus' word. And in believing, we find him faithful. Now, it's right to believe all Jesus' words, to believe Jesus. Is that you? Are you able to humble yourself to hear Jesus? Are you believing Jesus' word and leaving your need in his hands? Well, John concludes this section 
with a verse that takes us back to chapter 211 so that we ponder what we've just witnessed, just heard, so that we for whom this story is being recorded would see Jesus' greatness. The NIV has, this was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. But let's face it, that is not a great translation. It makes you think that there was a first sign that Jesus performed after he came back into Galilee. But where's that first sign? There's no other sign recorded before this when Jesus has come back into Galilee. A literal translation is better, better. And literally it goes like this. Furthermore, Jesus made this to be second sign, having come from Judea to Galilee. And when you read it like that, it tells you that John is consciously taking us back to John 2.11. Jesus first mighty work recorded in the gospel. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee, writes John, was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. You see, the first sign was that performed in Cana in Galilee, the turning of water into wine. And here is the second. And this second sign is deliberately done in Cana to make you think of that first sign. But why call it the second sign? Because hasn't Jesus done many other signs since turning the water into wine? Well, the answer is yes. Look at chapter 2. Many people saw the signs he was performing in Jerusalem and believed in his name. Or Nicodemus coming to Jesus says, We know that you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing. But amongst the many signs and wonders Jesus has been doing, Jesus is now deliberately singling out this one. And John is deliberately recording it to point to the same thing, the first sign pointed to. That's right. Jesus made this second sign, the second sign, because it points to what the first sign pointed to. Now, what did that first sign, the turning of water into wine, point to? Well, John tells us it revealed his glory, that Jesus had both the compassion and the creative power of the living God himself, that Jesus is genuinely, truly the word become flesh whose reality is the reality of God. Jesus makes this healing the second sign because like the first sign, it reveals his glory. The glory of the unique son, full of grace and truth. Now how does it do that? Well, what do we see in this second sign? We see a powerful word, like the very word of God, Isaiah spoke of. As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. What do we see of Jesus' word? It accomplishes what he desires It achieves his purpose. His is the word of God. And this powerful word is a word that gives life. You see, Jesus, throughout the chapters we've read already, has been promising life to those who believe in him. 
just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever drinks the water I give them, says Jesus, will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, what is revealed in this sign is that Jesus' word brings life because death is the issue in this story. Death is what is threatening to take away this child from his father. Verse 47, he's about to die. Verse 48, come down before my child dies. And in response, it is stressed that what is given is life. Life by the word of Jesus. Verse 50, your son lives. Verse 51, the servants say, your child lives. Verse 53, he knew in that hour in which he knew that this was the hour in which Jesus said, your son lives. So what do we see? We see that death is no match for the word of Jesus. That corruption and dissolution of terminal illness is met and overcome by Jesus' word effortlessly. A word that is true, even if its fulfilment is not immediately seen, not immediately seen by us. In seeing the powerful, life-giving word of Jesus, what is revealed here is that Jesus is the word. The eternal word become flesh, the word from God speaking, the words of God who should always be believed. Believed by us because this is a sign for us people who have the word of Jesus without the physical presence of Jesus. That's us, isn't it? We have the word without the physical presence of Jesus. People who need to know the power of Jesus' word. This is for us. We hear of many other signs, but this is the second sign recorded deliberately, made the second sign so that we would believe Jesus by believing his word. So what are you seeking from Jesus this evening? Whatever it is, are you desperate enough, like this man was, to keep listening and to so receive from Jesus what he is willing to give on his terms. Are you desperate enough not to be deterred by hard words, words you might find personally confronting that reveal your faithlessness or your thanklessness or your determination to stay in charge of your own life, desperate enough not to be deterred because you know that you have nowhere else to go. And let me say, friends, every one of you should be that desperate. You should be desperate. For death is the end of every one of us and we have nowhere else to go. Your good works, your money, your family, your philosophy, they won't give you life. They won't spare you from death. For death, eternal death, is the judgment on our sins. And none of those things can bring us forgiveness from the Holy God. Here in the word of Jesus is life 
in a world of death. Life in Jesus himself, who has died and risen, shows that he has life in himself. And having life in himself, the life of God can give that life to all who trust him. Are you desperate enough to keep listening until you hear his promise, his repeated promise, until you know that that is a promise Jesus makes to you? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Or again, John 5, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. Are you desperate enough to keep listening until you hear Jesus' promise, hear it as spoken to you, and believe? There is nowhere else to go for life. And if you say you believe in Jesus, is your Jesus big enough to be trusted to give you what you really need by his word. Is he as he is? The eternal son who reveals the father in whom we see God, grace and truth. The one in whom in Paul's words dwell all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in whom the fullness of deity dwells bodily. The one who speaks the words of the living God whose every word is true and so whose every word should be believed and obeyed. Is your Jesus big enough, big enough to give life to all so that you urge all to turn to him? Is he big enough so that you keep listening to his word, even his confronting words, words our society might want to make you feel embarrassed about? You know those words, that he's the only way to the Father. Oh, that you cannot honour the living God without honouring him by believing his word. Jesus claimed that if you don't worship God as he has revealed himself in his son, then you are an idolater. Oh, his word that God's wrath rests on those who will not repent and believe in Jesus. His claim that you should love him above all, leave all to follow him. Sure, Jesus is big enough. So often we disfigure our Christian lives by acting as if Jesus has no right to say this or that to me or to others, as if he is not big enough to be believed and trusted in all things. Is your Jesus big enough to bring you to repent of thinking that he's just there to meet your needs and serve your agenda? Big enough to give you better and more where we trust him to give what he wills. Jesus made this his second sign. See his glory and trust his word for the life he promises, the life you need if you will do not die forever, for his word brings life. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do pray of your mercy that we would be like that ruler, that we wouldn't be put off by words that confront our unbelief or self-centeredness, that we keep listening to Jesus and hear his promise as addressed to us and believe and find life. Help 
us to grow in our trust in Jesus so that we trust him as he deserves to be trusted. The eternal word whose every word is true and whose word believed will bring eternal life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.